folks, we're going to start now. And I want to thank you very much for your patience for waiting. I know it's extremely hot here, so if you have coats or anything you want to take off or sweaters, you probably should do that. Um, the program's a little longer than usual, but um, it's going to be wonderful. So as, as long as you're comfortable, you'll really enjoy it. I want to welcome you to the second of our series, Silence Voices. This is the last night of Passover, the day after Easter. In two important religions, a time of moving out of the narrows, of rebirth, and of hope. So from this perspective, an auspicious time to read from the works of imprisoned, banned, and exiled South African writers. But as we shall be reminded by he Bessie Hess's fine story, the servants of Christianity have also acted in behalf of the English and Afrikaners to suppress all writers of native culture, no less than native economic and political freedom. The growth and symbolic annual rebirth of the culture of a small minority of white people has been at the black majority's daily and severe expense. We're speaking here of very seriously silenced voices. Tonight, our reading will begin with Dennis Brutus, who some of you may well know. Dennis Brutus was born in Salisbury, Rhodesia, now Harare, Zimbabwe, of South African parents. He returned to South Africa in infancy and grew up in Port Elizabeth, where he was friends with Govan Mbeki, and later worked with him for several years, both in journalism and in organizing. Brutus was and is a major figure in contemporary South African poetry and literature. His collected works include A Simple Lust and Stubborn Hope, and his poetry is widely anthologized. As a relentless fighter against apartheid, he was arrested in 1963, escaped and was shot, and re-imprisoned at Robben Island, where he spent time again with his friend Mbeki. Brutus was under house arrest in 1965 and exiled in 1966. He was responsible as president of the South African Non-Racial Olympic Committee for the exclusion of South Africa and Rhodesia from the Olympic Games, South Africa since 1964, and Rhodesia from 1972. After a long battle for asylum in this country, he has recently been granted political asylum. And though exile can never match one's homeland, we are proud at last to be part of his new home. Dennis Brutus will read from the works of Goban Mbeki, the imprisoned writer who we are celebrating tonight at our reading. He will also read from Madiguani and a bit of his own work at the very end of the program. Our second poet to read is June Jordan, poet, activist, teacher, who was born in Harlem and raised in Bedford-Stuyvesant. She began writing poetry at the age of seven and is the author of 14 books, among them Civil Wars, Passion, and Things I Do in the Dark. She is a professor of English at the State University at Sidoni Brook. She is currently collaborating with Adrian Torf, musician and composer, and they have completed a tribute to Dr. Martin Luther King, Freedom Now, which they presented in premiere performance at Town Hall on January 13, 1984. The energy and of her intense commitments come through in all that she writes, as well as in her reading and her speaking. June Jordan will read from the fiction of Bessie Head and the poetry of Oswald Michali. 
Philip Levine, the third poet to read tonight, was born in an identical twin in Detroit in 1928, and he has written, in a, and as he has written in a poem, nobody gave a damn. After a succession of stupid jobs, this is according to him, he left the city for good and settled in Fresno, California, where he sometimes teaches. Philip Levine has three grown sons and 11 books of poems. Among them, they feed the lion. This June, his selected poems will come out in Athenaeum. Philip Levine will read from the poetry of Sifos Apamla and Brayton Breitenbach. Each of our guest poets will also tell you something about the people whose poems or stories they are reading. I'd like to tell you also that at the end of the reading, our poets will be very happy to sign books which are for sale of theirs, um, I suppose, somewhere down in the bookstore. There are no photographs permitted and no recordings. And is there anything else I ought to be announcing? No smoking. And other than that, we'll go ahead now with Dennis. Carol, I'm not sure if you'll hear me better if I stand or if I sit, so why don't I try both? <laughs> See if this works. Any better? Okay. Uh, I'm very grateful to be here. I don't think I can, in fact, acknowledge all the people who've made this occasion possible. I'm not going to try. But uh, it is, for me, something of very special importance to know that here in the United States you can hear the voice of someone who has been in prison for over 20 years in South Africa and by this action demonstrate your concern for him, for his freedom, and for that of all the others in the prisons of South Africa. I thought I would begin by reading a couple of bits relating to Govan Mbeki's work, particularly his major work, The Peasants' Revolt, and then talk a little about him as a man I knew, both outside prison and inside prison, and then end by reading a couple of extracts from the Peasants' Revolt. The first uh, a few lines are by Ronald Siegel, who edited the British edition of <coughs> the Peasants' Revolt uh, for Penguin Books, and I'll read a couple of bits from uh, the comments in the editorial preface. Uh, Siegel. While throughout the rest of Africa, the tribal system is being eroded by modern economic organization and the spread of centralized government, South Africa alone, with the most sophisticated economy on the continent, is attempting not only to arrest the decay, but uh, somehow to reverse it. Then he goes on to analyze the process of apartheid and concludes, having discussed how 
the Pretoria regime is trying to force the African people back into the 19th and 18th century and to revive the uh, tribal structures. He concludes by saying, the struggle uh, to force tribalism on black South Africa, however certain its failure, has already been a cruel and a costly one and promises to be much more so before the end. Governor Mbeki, himself a leader of the African National Congress, who has concentrated his political activities in the Transkei, is now serving a life sentence. And I should say in parenthesis that in South Africa, a life sentence means literally until you die. There is no parole, there is no remission, and the wardens periodically remind the prisoners that the only way you will ever leave prison is when we carry out your corpse in a coffin. There is no other way to leave prison. And um, Siegel concludes, his book, Mbeki's book, is both an explanation for and a tribute to the character of the struggle. Then there's a rather unusual preface by Ruth First. I wish I had time to read all of it. I'm just going to read <coughs> a couple of extracts. Uh, she describes how uh, Governor Becky smuggled the manuscript for this book out of prison. Uh, scrawled on pieces of brown paper. In fact, what she didn't know, and what I know, is that they were pieces of packages uh, in which tobacco was wrapped. Uh, the prisoners were asked to save all the brown paper packages in which the prison, uh, the tobacco came, and to give them to Govan, and he then wrote them on this manuscript and it was smuggled out of prison. And Ruth first uh, laboriously assembled this and put it together. And uh, then Govan was released, and she was able to collaborate with him in the final product. Uh, a word about Ruth first herself. Some of you may know of her. A South African exile herself, a political activist. She edited a journal called Fighting Talk, for which I wrote, as well as Govan and Becky. And she died some years ago in exile in Mozambique, where she was a professor at the university. She received a parcel in the mail, which blew her head off, and she was killed by a parcel bomb, which probably came from South Africa so that Ruth is no longer here either. This is Ruth writing about Govan. This book has had a painful birth. Govan and Becky is recognized widely in South Africa as an expert on the Transkei and on rural and agrarian problems. But not for him the seclusion of a study or library the facilities for patient interviews and field work. This manuscript was written in fits and starts in the kitchens of several African homes 
in Port Elizabeth, its progress frequently interrupted by police raids, the sheets of paper had to be hurriedly secreted or moved away from where the writer lived or worked for his and their safekeeping. And a great slice of this book was written on rolls of paper, toilet paper and brown paper, when Mbeki served a two-month spell of solitary confinement. He was acquitted after those court proceedings, and the manuscript was smuggled out of the cell to a typist who pored over the faint pencil writing on the thin paper by candlelight in the privacy of her home in the ghetto. As the book went to press, Governor Becky sat in the dock at the Ravonia trial, side by side with his fellow Transkyans Nelson Mandela, Walter Sisulu, and Raymond Mshlava. They and the five other co-accused stood trial for their lives. Govan's book on the Transkai helps to explain his deep involvement in the political struggle of his people. He had a formidable grasp of economic and political problems. And more than that, his own life in the Transkai has bound him to the problems and the passions of the peasants. And then she concludes by talking about his scholastic achievements, then his work in journalism, his studies at Fort Hare University, where I graduated subsequently, and ends by talking about his courage and his personal talents. He had a sharp mind intolerant of the foolish and the faint-hearted. But between the meetings and the draftings and the circulars and the resolutions, he was also a gentle and considerate friend. Today he is locked away on the penal Robben Island, serving a sentence of life imprisonment. If I might add a personal note before we read just one or two extracts from his own work. He graduated, as I said, from Fort Hare University, a missionary institution where I subsequently graduated. Uh, he became a teacher and then was forbidden to teach by the apartheid government. He was one of those who was found to be dangerous for young minds, and the South African government can make it illegal for you to teach, as they did in my case. Subsequently, I was served with an order which made it a criminal act to teach. He then became a journalist and the correspondent for a radical paper, and was the Port Elizabeth correspondent, and so I saw a great deal of him. Well, we were both politically active, except that he was also writing about things as well as doing things. That wonderful combination, I think, of the craftsman and the activist. And we worked together for many years and sometimes disagreed on matters of political strategy. And uh, so it was a kind of a rocky relationship 
but always with a great deal of respect for each other. He was then arrested and charged with high treason and spent four years on trial for his life, facing a sentence of uh, death by hanging if he was convicted. And um, I had my own problems with the South African secret police. And so when we next met, it was on Robben Island, in prison. Um, I had already arrived there before he did. And um, I remember seeing him for the first time from my cell across a corridor his hair had grown surprisingly white in a very short time. And there he was carefully doing a set of exercises, a kind of Tai Chi exercise, I think, slowly and uh, uh, very rhythmically working out his, his morning exercises. Subsequently, we broke rocks together. We were issued with our daily pile of rocks and a hammer, and so we spend time on the rock pile. And after that, I was separated from him uh, because um, I had been assaulted by some of the guards and sent to hospital, and uh, that was probably the last time I saw him. But he's still there 20 years later, and uh, as marvelously courageous and high-spirited as ever he was. And uh, I think what keeps people going in prison is the belief that there are people outside who care enough about them to, to be doing things on their behalf. I think that's very important. Uh, let me turn to a few excerpts from uh, Garvin's own work. It's a, an enormously carefully and intricately constructed work, and, and I can't do justice to it by simply reading a few fragments. So I've been forced to kind of pick just a raisin out of the pudding here and there. It's, it's not very satisfactory. The Transkai is Dr. Ferwood's answer to worldwide criticism. This is his opening chapter called The Great deception. In this area, the Transkai, smaller than Togo, the smallest independent African state, but bigger than Basutu land on which it borders, the South African government's claims for its racial policy stand or fall. To those who say that apartheid is discriminatory and oppressive, the South African government replies that it provides the only chance the African people will ever have to develop along their own lines, in their own areas, and that the establishment of a Bantustan in the Transkai is to give that country an independence more meaningful and secure than the independence attained elsewhere in Africa during the last decade. The establishment in South Africa of Bantustans is based on the apartheid supposition that certain areas of the country belong to the whites and others, 
generally known as the reserves, belong to the Africans, with neither people able to enjoy rights in the areas belonging to the other. So he begins with that kind of succinct summary of what is happening in the Transkai, in the Bantustans, in the reserves. And then he looks at the leader of this particular Bantustan, the Transkai, a man called Matanzima, whom in fact he had known personally, and when Govan was politically active and was covering news for New Age, the magazine, Matanzima had let it be known that if Govan ever entered the Transkai, he would have him flayed alive. He would have his skin taken off and whipped. This is uh, Govan on Matanzima. Matanzima, arrogant and ambitious, explains his acceptance of the Bantustan program on the grounds that the Transkai could in this way become South Africa's first independent black state. Yet, in practice, Matanzima is playing the role of the classic collaborator, as the strong man groomed by the white government to keep down the peasantry, to destroy the political fighters of the Transkai, who although outlawed and persecuted in the Matanzima kingdom, are becoming throughout the country an inspiration to resistance, as indeed, of course, Govan has himself become uh, an inspiration to others who are resisting. Uh, he looks at some of the options open to Matanzima and goes on. The Matanzima way, it has been suggested, will be to call the bluff of the apartheid government, to bite the apartheid hand that feeds and protects him. Ambition will undoubtedly drive him to demand a larger share of the takings. But Matanzima knows the nationalist government full well, for he is not untutored in the stratagems of Bantu administration. He must know that real independence granted by an apartheid government is impossible, and that if he defies the machine that has made him, he will be destroyed by it. The truth is that apartheid is losing its stake fast in the Transkai. Open terror imposed for too long will fire a violent resistance. If, in a desperate though unlikely bid to save itself and apartheid from the acid test of the Transkai, the nationalists try to push ahead with industrialization and unionization, they will create in the Transkai faster than ever new forces that will rise to destroy them. And finally, in his concluding remarks, but he goes on to say, 
that these forces are now building throughout the country. The centers of these resistance forces are to be found in the rural areas, and that it is probable that it is in the Transkai itself that we will see the destruction of the apartheid system. I believe that gives you some idea both of the clarity of uh, Mbeki's thought and the clarity of his expression. Uh, there may be time later on for questions and discussion. I believe there will be provision for it. But let me say again in conclusion that uh, I'm very grateful that we can on this occasion hear some of the words and the ideas of someone who is silenced in his own country and uh, whose voice cries out to us from prison. Thank you. I've chosen to read uh, four poems by the contemporary South African poet Sipo Sapalma. He was born in 32 in South Africa. He lives there now. I would like to read to you a remarkable statement he wrote himself in 1975 about his own literary career. He writes, I was brought up on Shakespeare, Dickens, Lawrence, Keats, and other English greats. True enough, they opened my eyes, gave me inspiration. In short, I received a rich sustenance from these men. But for my body to have remained healthy, for my eyes to have kept on the right course, I would have liked to have been fed on Nymphale, Laguma, Themba, Nkosi. I would have liked to have laid my hands on the unrewarding rage of Richard Wright, James Baldwin, Leroy Jones, and other Afro-American writers. These men I would have liked tenfold because they have all sucked from the tits of my mother. But alas, for me, this has been denied. It would seem my emptiness, my rootlessness, my blindness is all that is supposed to keep me in my place. In the poems I chose, I, I would hope to illustrate the, the extraordinary range of his writing. They come from the three books that are available here in our country. The Blues is You and Me, Soweto I Love, and Hurry Up to It. You find, he, for example, in this poem, his extraordinary 
very frank anger, his willingness even to destroy language, to get at what it is that is gnawing in his heart, called the same, the same. I doesn't care of you black, I doesn't care of you white, I doesn't care of you India, I doesn't care of you Clearlink, if sometimes you South Africa, you got a big, terrible, terrible somewheres in yourself. I mean for sure now, all the peoples is make like God, and the God I know for sure, he make everybody with one heart. For sure now this heart go go the same, that's for meaning to say one man no different from another. So now you see a big terrible, terrible stand here how one man make another man feel the pain he doesn't feel himself. For sure now that's the whole point. Sometime you want to know how I meaning for is simple. When the nail of say the thorn tree scratched little bit, little bit of skin, I doesn't care of say black I doesn't care of, say, white. I doesn't care of, say, India. I doesn't care of, say, Clearlink. I mean for sure the skin. Only one thing come for sure. And the one thing for sure is red blood. That's for sure the same. The same for everybody. So for sure now, you doesn't look another man in the eye. This same poet can be enormously sophisticated and wondrously nasty, as in the following shop assistant. The lady showed me a distance. Stand back, boy. I don't know what you smell. She made me think of sunlight and palm olive soap. My mind raced back post-war to Big Ben and Life Boy. I saw visions of men, armpits raised for right guard and mum. To her superior airs I said, Helena Rubenstein and Eau de Cologne. She wagged a finger at me singing, Don't be rude, boy, I'll call the police. I said to her burning eyes, go ahead, your time runs out. The lady broke down in tears. And he can be wonderfully lyrical and still personal, but very subtly. The seagull. 
Now, proud wing. You got the tape ready? Okay. The seagull. Now, proud wing spread bat-like. The seagull hung like a kite above the sea water. Then up, up it climbed without effort, fearful always of the unruly waves churned into spray. Her outstretched wing waited. Her water-dabbled feet dangled over the charging seesaw. Again, again hawk-like she would swoop upon the ebbing waters to peck here and there and retreat mid-air. Once more it swirled in a celestial arc, hovered its own chirp chirping, a cue to descend again before the advance of another rising swell. In that instant, I felt the agony of being. I saw the whirl on a wing. I saw myself hover at all times. And finally, he can gather all of these, the anger, the subtlety, the lyricism, into one poem. Bracelets, by the way, have the same meaning of handcuffs in this poem. It's called The Will. The house, by right, you will have to vacate, surrender the permit, and keep your peace. The burglar proofing and the gate will go to my elder son. So will the bicycle and a pair of bracelets. The kitchen scheme and utensils will go to my little girl. So will the bathtub and the two brooms. The bedroom suite will go to my younger son, who is married. So will the studio couch. The peach tree uproot. It might grow in the homelands. So might it be with your stem. The Bible you will have to share, for you will always want its life. The cat spotted black and white, you will have to divide. For that, you will need God's guidance. Thank you. I'm very happy to be part of this event tonight. I've been part of the solidarity efforts in this country to support the whole Southern African liberation efforts for quite some time. I'm very happy to see tonight, in particular, many representatives of Art Against Apartheid, which is a new solidarity effort which is headquartered here in New York. And there are many young poets, black and white, who are working very hard, and I see Jean Bond from Freedom Ways. And this is very exciting because South Africa is out of the news too much of the time. And um, 
It's a holocaust taking place there, as a matter of fact. I'm also very happy and privileged tonight to introduce the African female element here. Uh, there are African women living in South Africa, and um, one of them, and when we're talking about silence, we're talking about two kinds of silence. We're talking about African women and South African women, whether we're talking about the black South African society or Africana society. Uh, women in general are silenced. One of the South African women, black South African women, who has managed to defy that effort to annihilate her voice is the very distinguished, brilliant writer, Bessie Head. She's a novelist. Her major works are When Rain Clouds Gather and A Question of Power. Her work has appeared in a number of magazines and publications, including Transition, New African, Classic, Forced Landing, and More Modern African Stories. As a result of her political work and activism in South Africa, Bessie Head was arrested, detained, and released, and then escaped to Botswana, where she's now living in exile. If you look at a map, you'll find where Botswana is. You look at a more detailed map, you'll see exactly the nature of her exile as well, physically speaking. Her own experience is incorporated in the novel, A Question of Power. This is from Forced Landing. It's a short story, but it's long in this context, so I'll read it very quickly. It's called Heaven Is Not Clothed by Bessie Head. All her life, Galetha Bege earnestly believed that her whole heart ought to be devoted to God, yet one catastrophe after another occurred to swerve her from this path. It was only in the last five years of her life, after her husband Ralokae had died, that she was able to devote her whole mind to her calling. Then all her pent-up and suppressed love for God burst forth, and she talked only of him day and night. So her grandchildren solemnly and with deep awe informed the mourners at her funeral. And all the mourners present at her hour of passing were utterly convinced that they had watched a profound and holy event. They talked about it for days afterwards. Galetha Bege was well over 90 when she died, and not at all afflicted by crippling ailments like most of the aging. In fact, only two days before her, her death, she had complained to her grandchildren of a sudden fever and a lameness in her legs, and she remained in bed. A quiet and thoughtful mood fell upon her. On the morning of the second day, she had abruptly demanded that all the relatives be summoned. My hour has come, she said with lofty dignity. No one quite believed it, because that whole morning she sat bolt upright in bed and talked to all who had gathered about God, whom she loved with her whole heart. Then exactly at noon she announced once more that her hour had indeed come and lay down peacefully like one about to take a short nap. Her last words were, I shall rest now because I believe in God. Then a terrible silence filled the hut and seemed to paralyze the mourners because they all remained immobile for some time. Each per person present cried quietly, as not one of them had witnessed such a magnificent death before. They only stirred when the old man, Modise, suddenly observed with great practicality that Galetha Bege was not in the correct position for death. She lay on her side with her right arm thrust out above her head. She ought to be turned over on her back with her hands crossed over her chest, he said. A smile flickered over the old man's face as he said this, as though it was just like Galetha Bege to make a miscalculation. 
She knew the hour of her death and everything, then forgot at the last minute the correct sleeping posture for the coffin. And later that evening, as he sat with his children near the outdoor fire for the evening meal, a smile again flickered over his face. I am of a mind to think that Galetha Bege was praying for forgiveness for her sins this morning, he said slowly. It must have been a sin for her to marry to Ralo Kae. He was an unbeliever to the day of his death. A gust of astonished laughter shook his family out of the solemn mood of mourning that had fallen upon them, and they all turned eagerly towards their grandfather, sensing that he had a story to tell. As you all know, the old man said wisely, Ralokae was my brother, but none of you present knows the story of Galafabege's life as I know it. And as the flickering firelight lit up their faces, he told the following story. I was never like Ralokae, an unbeliever, but that man, my brother, draws out my heart. He liked to say that we as a tribe would fall into great difficulties if we forgot our own customs and laws. Today, his words seem true. There is thieving and adultery going on such as was not possible under Setswana law. In those days when they were young, said the old man, Modise, it had become the fashion for all black people to embrace the gospel. For some, it was the mark of whether they were civilized or not. For some, like Galefebege, it was their whole life. Anyone with eyes to see would have known that Galefebege had been born good under any custom, whether Setswana or Christian. She would still have been good. It was this natural goodness of heart that made her so eagerly pursue the word of the gospel. There was a look on her face, absent, abstracted, as though she needed to share the final secret of life with God who would understand all things. So she was always on her way to church, and in hours of leisure in life would have gone on in this quiet and worshipful way had not a sudden catastrophe occurred in the yard of Rolakae. Rolakae had been married for nearly a year when his young wife died in childbirth. She died when the crops of the season were being harvested, and for a year, Balokae imposed on himself the traditional restraints and disciplines of Boswagadi, or mourning for the deceased. A year later, again, at the harvest time, he underwent the cleansing ceremony demanded by custom and could once more resume the normal life of a man. It was the unexpectedness of the tragic event and the discipline imposed on him that made Balokae take note of the life of Galetha Bege. She lived just three yards away from his own yard, and formerly he had barely taken note of her existence. It was too quiet and orderly. But during that year of mourning, it delighted him to hear that gentle and earnest voice of Galathebege inform him that such tragedies were the will of God. As soon as he could, he began courting her. He was young and impatient to be married again, and no one could bring back the dead. So a few days after the cleansing ceremony, he made his intentions very clear to her. Let us two get together, he said. I am pleased by all of your ways. Galetha Bege was at the same time startled, pleased, and hesitant. She was hesitant because it was well known that Ralo Kae was an unbeliever. He had not once set foot in church. So she looked at him, begging an apology, and mentioned the matter that was foremost in her mind. Ralo Kae, she said uncertainly, I have set God always before me implying by that statement that perhaps he was seeking a Christian life too, like her own. But he only looked at her in a strange way and said nothing. This matter was to stand like a fearful sword between them, but he had set his mind on winning Galathebege as his wife. That was all he was certain of. He would turn up in her yard day after day. Hello, girlfriend, he'd greet her enchantingly. 
You always wore a black beret perched at a jaunty angle on his head, and his walk and manner were gay and jaunty, too. He was so exciting as a man that he threw her whole life into turmoil. It was the first time love had come her way, and it made the blood pound fiercely through her whole body till she could feel its very throbbing at the tips of her fingers. It turned her thoughts from God a bit to this new magic life that life was offering her. The day she agreed to be his wife, that sword quivered like a fearful thing between them. Ralokae said quietly and finally, I took my first wife according to the old customs. I am going to take my second wife according to old customs, too. He could see the protest on her face. She wanted to be married in church according to the Christian custom, but he also had his own protest to make. The God might be all right, he explained, but there was something wrong with the people who had brought the word of the gospel to the land. Their love was enslaving black people, and he could not stand it. That was why he was without belief. It was the people he did not trust. They were full of tricks. <coughs> they were people who, at the sight of a black man, pointed a finger in the air, looked away into the distance, and said impatiently, Boy, will you carry this? Boy, will you fetch that? They had made a new order of things into the land, and they made the people cry for love. One never had to cry for love in the customary way of life. Respect was just there for the people all the time. That was why he rejected all things foreign. What did a woman do with a man like that who knew his own mind? She either loved him or she was mad. <laughs> From, <laughs> From that day on, Galetha Vega knew what she would do. <laughs> She would do all that Ralokae commanded as a good wife should. But her former life was like a drug. Her footsteps were too accustomed to wearing down the footpath to the church, so they carried her to the home of the missionary which stood just under its shadow. The missionary was a short, anonymous-looking man who wore glasses. He had been the resident missionary for some time, and, like all his fellows, he did not particularly like the people. He always complained to his kind that they were terrible beggars and rather stupid. So when he opened the door and saw Galetha Beggar there, his expression with its raised eyebrows clearly said, Well, what do you want now? I am to be married, sir, Galetha Beggar said politely after the exchange of greetings. The missionary smiled. Well, come in, my dear. Let us talk about the arrangements. He stared at her with a polite professional interest. She was a complete non-entity, a part of the vague black blur which was his congregation. Oh, they no noticed chiefs and people like that but not the silent mass of the humble and lowly who had an almost weird capacity to creep quietly through life. Her next word brought, words brought her sharply into focus. The man I am to marry, sir, does not wish to be married in the Christian way. He will only marry under Setswana custom, she said softly. They always knew the superficial stories about heathen customs. An expression of disgust crept into his face. Sexual malpractices had been associated with the traditional marriage ceremony and, shuddered, they draped the stinking intestinal bag of the ox around the necks. That we cannot allow, he said sharply. Tell him to come and marry the Christian. compromise of tenderness could be made between the two traditions opposed to each other. She trembled because it was beyond her station in life to be involved in controversy and protest. The missionary noted the trembling and alarm, and his tone softened a bit, but his next words were devastating. My dear, he said persuasively, heaven is closed to the unbeliever. 
Galetha Begi stumbled home on faint legs. It never occurred to her to question such a miserable religion which terrified people with the fate of eternal damnation and hellfire if they were heathens or sinners. Only Raloka seemed quite unperturbed by the fate that awaited him. He smiled. <laughs> he smiled when Galetha Begi relayed the words of the missionary to him. Girlfriend, he said carelessly, you can choose what you like, Setswana custom or Christian custom. I have chosen to live my life by Setswana custom. Never once in her life had Galetha Bege's integrity been called into question. She wanted to make the point clear. What you mean, Raloke, she said firmly, is that I must choose you over my life with the church. I have a great love in my heart for you, so I choose you. I shall tell the priest about this matter because his command is that I marry in the church. Even Galetha Bege was astounded by the harshness of the missionary's attitude. The catastrophe, catastrophe she never anticipated was that he abruptly excommunicated her from the church. She could no longer enter the church if she married under Setswana custom. It was beyond her to reason that the missionary was the representative of both God and something evil, the mark of civilization. It was unthinkable that an, an illiterate an ignorant man could display such contempt for the missionary's civilization. His rage and hatred were directed at Raloke, but the only way in which he could inflict punishment was to banish Galetha Bege from the church. If it hurt anyone at all, it was only Galetha Bege. The austere rituals of the church, the mass, the sermons, the intimate communications in prayer with God, all this had thrilled her heart deeply. But Rolokae was also representative of an ancient stream of holiness that people had lived with before any white man had set foot on the land, and it only needed a small protest to stir up loyalty for the old customs. The old man, Modise, paused at this point in the telling of his tale, but his young listeners remained breathless and silent, eager for the conclusion. Today, he continued, it is not a matter of debate because the young care neither way about religion. But in that day, the expulsion of Galatha Bege from the church was a matter of debate. It made the people of our village ward think. There was great indignation because both Galatha Bege and Raloke were much respected in the community. People then wanted to know how it was that Raloke, who was an unbeliever, could have heaven close to him. A number of people, all the relatives who officiated at the wedding ceremony, then decided that if heaven was close to Galetha Bege and Roloke, it might as well be close to them too, so they all no longer attended church. On the day of the wedding, we had all our own things. Everyone knows the extent to which the cow was a part of the people's life and customs. We took our clothes from the cow and our food from the cow, and it was the symbol of our wealth. So the cow was a holy thing in our lives. The elders then cut the intestinal bag of the cow in two, and one portion was placed around the neck of Galathabege and one portion around the neck of Rolokae to indicate the wealth and good luck they would find together in married life. Then the porridge and meat were dished up in our mogopo bowls, which we had used from old times. There was much capering and ululating that day because Rolokae had honored the old customs. A tender smile once more flickered over the old man's face. Galetha Bege could never forsake the custom in which she had been brought up. All through her married life, she would find a corner in which to pray, 
Sometimes Raloke would find her so and ask, What are you doing, mother? And she would reply, I am praying to the Christian God. The old man leaned forward and stirred the dying fire with a partially burnt out log of wood. His listeners sighed, the way people do when they have heard a particularly good story. As they stared at the fire, they found themselves debating the matter in their minds as their elders had done 40 or 50 years ago. Was heaven really closed to the unbeliever, Raloke? Or had the Christian custom been so intolerant of Setswana custom that it could not bear the holiness of Setswana custom? Wasn't there a place in heaven too for Setswana custom? Then that gust of astonished laughter shook them again. Galetha Bege had been very well known in the village ward over the f past five years for the supreme authority with which she talked about God. Perhaps her simple and good heart had been terrified that the doors of heaven were indeed closed on Raloke'e, and she had been trying to open them. going to read three short poems, part of a fourth poem by Nguapele Madingwani, a young South African poet, one of the new generation of militant poets in South Africa. Many of them have been exposed to banning orders censorship, imprisonment, uh, intimidation by the secret police, including Madingwane, who was arrested recently uh, for the possession of uh, various books, including his own. It was a crime for him to be in possession of his own book. Uh, the book is called uh, Africa my beginning, and I will read from it. I'm glad to say he was recently charged and then released, so he's not being sent to prison. I'm not quite sure what the circumstances are. Uh, we know that Nadine Gordimer was active on his behalf, and apparently the charges were dropped. But it is a crime in South Africa to own certain books, or to read them, or even to quote from them in the course of a review. That too is a crime. I happen to be among those who is so distinguished. Uh, Madinguani, uh, the book is called Africa, My Beginning, and I'll read a few bits from it. This is from a sequence called uh, Black Trial, number two. Cry loud I did in the past years. I now doubt the distance between me and the reach of my cry. For even he who worries most about my safety cannot afford the pain 
that man is busy piling on his aging back. And my spine has gone dry, devoid of fluid, that made me carry this burden up and down, down and up, ever since time began. I have screamed loud, it's enough, and I doubt if I will ever recover the echoes of my cry in this dark and cold dungeon of the damned. Come, death, my Redeemer, if you may. Come grant me my exit. I have served man, my cause until now I cannot bear this disaster, for man, the enemy, has decided my fate from his high throne of injustice. Oh, how I wish that man could discover himself and let peace of mind flow like the original river of love thy fellow man as thou lovest thyself. And then a short one, very short one. Ask my shadow what happened. It was there when it occurred. And another from the Black Trial sequence, this one, number 13. Africa's way was to take time before requesting the presence of outsiders on its ground until the birth of the new awakening put words in its leader's mouth saying, O oh, Africa, why Africa? On my knees I went all the years I lived in search of truth to free myself, but I found none. So I wept, O oh, Africa, why Africa? What went wrong between me and freedom? Freedom's futures are bright. Dark am I, oh, so black. Though I survived the valley of the dead in search of truth to free myself, with tears rolling down my face, again I asked, what went wrong, Africa? So I wept, oh, Africa, why, Africa? What went wrong? Was it the blunder of embracing imperialism? Was it the ignorance of our forefathers? Was it the greed of capitalism? Was it the weakening of our strength? Was it the reflection of our color that went between us, between Africa and freedom? 
Oh, Africa, why Africa? And finally, just a portion of a long poem with which he ends the collection, which is called Africa, My Beginning. No easy way to freedom. Ten lonely years, black hopeful men, food being their wish, courage their pay, until Africa was respected, for a leader had emerged from the bush to Maputo. Viva Frelimo. Africa, my beginning, and Africa, my ending. I remember Jatoivo. Namibia is not lost. Nujoma is not idle. He'd be a coward if he was. You might as well know Germany is no more in Africa. Africa, my beginning, and Africa, my ending. Azania, here I come. From apartheid in tatters in the land of sorrow, from that marathon bondage, the Sharpville massacre, the flames of Soweto. I was born there, I will die there, in Africa, my beginning, Africa, my ending. Brayton Brayton back in 1975 in Rotterdam. We were together at an international poetry festival. We were part of a project to translate Zulu poetry into uh, European languages. And uh, Brayton and Czeslaw Milos took the assignment very seriously. And I remember finally it produced some stunning translations uh, from Zulu into Polish, which Miloš read with great excitement and verve. He was a Breitenbach, a very gentle, scholarly man. There were maybe 12 of us in the room And I think with the exception of Polish and Swedish, which Trenstromer spoke, there was no language in the room, including African languages that he didn't know. I, I couldn't have then imagine what was in store for him. I knew him as the poet who, who had left uh, University of Cape Town when he was 20 and come to Europe to, to start a career as a painter, married a 
young woman from Vietnam settled in Paris and in 1964 had won this, a, a National Literary Prize which he was unable to go and, and receive with his wife because the marriage was not recognized as legal. In 72, he had been given a 90-day visa and they had gone to visit uh, South Africa. And out of that came this remarkable book, which I'm going to read from, A Season in Paradise. Shortly after I saw him in July and August, he re-entered South Africa, this time traveling under a fake passport. He was there for three weeks. Apparently he was followed every day by the cops. And on the day he hoped to leave, he was arrested at the airport, charged with violation of the terrorism acts, found guilty, sentenced to nine years on Robbins Island. Um, two years later, he was retried for some really incredible things, like trying to liberate the island by bringing a Russian submarine. He, he was not found guilty of these offenses. Uh, Penn and... Uh, other international groups work for his release. And two years ago, rather mysteriously, he was released. And he now lives in Paris in exile. I'm going to read three poems from this book, which is really a, a book of going home. It is, as I say, available here. It's available here in the States. Yeah, perhaps even in this wondrous bookstore. First Prayer to the Mantis. They say, little creator insect, the old men say that the star fields and the worlds and all that revolves and grows and sighs and perishes were created by you and that you planted an ostrich feather in the dark, and behold, there was the moon. O primeval being, you who fired with love consumes your liar, your lover, why then did you abandon their descendants, all mankind? Do you remember those you called forth from the mud? There are fires in the sky, mother, and the moon is cold as a shoe and a black lament like smoke mingled with dust. For your black people, people maker, labor like fertilizer in the earth so that money elsewhere for others may accumulate. Yoke yellow little praying priestess, Hear our smoke and our dust. Punish those who have reduced your people to slaves. And one of the things I remember him talking about was the extraordinary landscape 
of South Africa and how much it had entered him and become him. You know, if, if you come from a place like Detroit, where I come from, you can damn near go to any ugly city in the world and feel, you know, suck up some smog and hear a lot of traffic. And except for the people you love, you're pretty much at home. But with such an extraordinary place, you're only home when you're home, like a peach blossom. As on the highway along the Langeberg Mountains, just outside Swellendam, the earth dark just after the shower, so cool, hands in pockets, a moon clambers above the blossoming of hills and folds, moonful of moon. In the vineyards, under the vines, among the leaves, hang bunches of black, wet sweetness. Holy carefree. Or else something infinite, like clouds cowing over the slopes of Zululand. Stalked through the land, hands in pockets. The sun hisses. A rag float with streamers and banners and a band of drums and strings a cloud of dust sent up by people dancing behold the skipping. Jubilant brown children in rags and tatters. When I met him, he seemed to believe he would never return to his homeland. And in this poem, written three years before the return, the final terrible return. He imagines himself going back in perhaps the only way he ever could have. Quite naturally, I believe in a hereafter. I will die and adorned in my gown of paradise come hither on vacation here where like a sun carpet the sun lies over everything to walk this road around this corner where the milkwood and the red thorn grow against this spirited sky the mountain far ahead and the sea behind up the lane I will live with the cats in the brushwood and walk through the wall through time setting in matter every now and then until it flows again and rots to life. And when you come to rest here, I will be sitting keenly in your company, staring at the grown-ups, and at night, rummage for rusks in the biscuit tin. Don't blame the mouse. I will not disturb you. But you will know I am here, for by day I shall make the sea green and blue, and in the evening light the stars with my eyes.
forgot to mention that uh, there's an anthology of South African writing called Somehow We Survive, which is available here this evening. And uh, in the anthology, you can find the work of Bessie Head, among other very important, serious South African writers. I think it's really amazing, you know, that we're really pursuing a paradox tonight because we're honoring silenced voices of South Africa, and clearly they have not been silenced. And I think it's very important to remember what we're talking about in the context of the Holocaust we are talking about in South Africa, that the black people of South Africa are not only not silenced, they are not acquiescent, they are fighting, they are fighting back, the resistance is growing, it is most serious, and it will soon be triumphant. So we're not talking about victims here, we're talking about exemplary fighters. This evening, the last uh, South African writer I'm privileged to share with you is this writer, Oswal M. Tishali. Let me spell that for you. O-S-W-A-L-D-M-T-S-H-A-L-I. And this poem that I will read called Flames of Fury comes from his book, Fire Flames. By any criterion, this is a poet of the first rank in the world contest, contest of the whole world, a visionary and a spirit invincible. And this is his poem, Oswald M. Tishali, Flames of Fury. Wait for them, brother. Wait for them, sister. Be ready. Flames of fury are coming like a wild belt fire, fanned by a whirlwind of fleeing dwarfs. Be ready, brother. Be ready, sister. Listen to the sound of the war trumpet, telling you to cry and gnash your teeth, announcing the pains of death and the blood that will flow wider than the Tugela River in flood when it bursts its banks to drown the laggard locust. Oh, yes, my brother, and you, my beloved sister, there will appear in the horizon flying machines sweeping like swallows that snatch the newly hatched maggots in the sky and spit flames of fury and squirt swords of poisonous death which will leave man and beast roasted, peeling off like overripe bananas. You will, brother, and you, my loving sister, hear the uncontrollable voices of mourning orphans and bereaved parents as they whimper and wince in the agony of scalding hot molten lead which will scorch the grass yellow like an ass's urine and leave the mountains bare and blackened like a rock rabbit's teeth. Beware, brother, beware, sister, falling tongues of fire from a belligerent's bow and arrow in a life and death combat hiss like hurricane when flying machines loaded with barrel-shaped bombs turn into sharp spears of fiery might tougher than syringa thorns. Birds will inhale the fumes and flee like mad dogs that have eaten of vultures' liver. They will shrink to the size of tiny bats' droppings, their wings singed and puffed up with pus, 
and the eagle's throne will be set on fire. It will burn into a handful of ashes which will be blown away by the broken armed wind. Where will you be, my brother, and you, my darling sister? Need I ask you? Needless to say, in the thick of it, in the front line of the struggle, from where you will witness, for you were the cause, those luxury houses crashing to the ground, demolishing the edifices of our degradation, watch their priceless paintings and treasure troves raised and reduced to the ground. Be ready, brother. Be prepared, sister, for the flames of fury to burn these symbols of our bondage, these shackles of our oppression and exploitation. Be ready, be firm, be strong. Listen, brother, resist it all. For the sake of our freedom, sister, reject the pernicious pack of lies, this insidious state of our lives. Refuse to be intimidated and frightened with the dead skin of a molten snake that is brandished as a big stick to beat the timid hearts of a subjugated people. Yes, brother, and you, my sister, gird your loincloth and bellow like a bull bristling with massive power. Blow your nostrils to blur the sun. Shake the earth to its rotten roots. Lick the gunpowder from the rusty cannons. Clash the shield against the spear. Let the bullet explode into a weeping droplet of sterile semen. Let the assegai sing the sweet song of our victory. Let death despair and perish into the enslaver's dungeon of defeat. Let him produce the plundered stores of three centuries of our conquest. Go, brother. Go, sister, back to drink from the fountain of our forefathers for your salvation and your liberation. Quaff copious drafts of your blackness. Remember, brother, remember, sister, to remain poised, ready to strike like the dangerous, provoked black mamba, for therein lies your strength and your black biceps forged from the black soil of the fertile valleys of Central Africa. Thank you. 
slight hunchback, a result of clutching the Bible for too long. Yet, he cannot be that religious, all points considered. But he's fond of breastfeeding, as witnessed from his forays into Angola, Mozambique, and Zimbabwe. Maybe his eyes haven't told us everything yet. It glitters with gold and diamonds, displaying these in London, New York, and Bonn. His belly grows large by the day, and from it he spews forth new tribal states, Transkai, Bupujaswana, Fenda, and Siskai. No doubt he has vast barren lands, fit for Dimbaza, Lime Hill, Fair Genoch, and so on. He's got long legs and very huge feet, trampling at will the coffee fields in Angola and the cashew nuts in Mozambique. Oh, the man fights a lot, as if short-tempered. Maybe he's punch-drunk. This man's voice has gone hoarse. He's heckled a great deal at UNO and other conferences elbowed out at so many, many places. Yet, he still gloats over an indomitable spirit that nestles snug only with right-wing forces, who rip apart the poor man's body, echoing with pain-swelling voices, curses on the unseen troublemakers and leftists. He reads the despair of some as triumph, and the prayers of others as God's will. Our own doubt has begun to tell us the man's mind has traces of underdevelopment, manifest in his many bad dreams. And the thought may not be too far-fetched, considering this man was not molded entirely in the blazing heat of the African soil. And who knows? Preoccupation with pigmentation may just be one strange release of a truth he knows too damn well. That's the end of uh, the first one. Yes. Beautiful. Was it all right? It was. The second one is called Clean Up the Mess. I want to wake up one morning and say, clean up the mess. It has to be a sunny South African morning, not like at Nyanga Cape Town, on a wet, cold, bleeding day, where people were loaded on buses and so many bags of maize, potatoes, and coal to be dumped in scrawny lands. Clean up the mess, I'll say. Tear up the statutory book. It's in a terrible mess many voices mouthing insubstantials. Don't just want to scrap the famous laws like the Boundary Education Act, the Group Areas Act, the stinky morality thing, or the job reservations lie. Start a new age, man. Not of these, in, uh, these conveniences like toilets for men and women, which are nothing but horrendous reminders of expedience. For nothing separated, up the mess. 
Let us stop the lie of change by degree, the creation of institutions that produce black and white computerized robots who ooze arrogance through nostrils. Clean up the mess for God's sake, or be damned. End of the second one. And the final one, called the Soweto Blues. I've learned to sing the blues. I said I've learned to sing the blues. I mean the true Soweto Blues. I went to Regina Mundi the other day. Oh yes, I went to Regina Mundi Church. And I saw what the law can be. Cops running kids to the ground. Cops raining blows on young and old. Cops authority. I know they speak of justice is blind. Oh man, how I know of mean injustice. And that's for sure the sweat of blues I wave. Take a walk down any street you like. I says walk around steamy Soweto streets. I bet you'll see blues shouting at street corners. Young men playing dice. I do. Young men lounging around lack of work, I do. Young men pleading for a world to love, I do. Oh my God, the blues got me where it hurts. I tell you, brother, the blues spin me around and around and that's for sure. Our bloody life is stormy sweat. I want to girdle myself with my neighbor. I said, it's time for unity in action because anything less just brings the on my back door. No more pious words for me. No more solo acts for me. No more self-hating sins for me. I'm gonna sing the blues away and shout. Going to Pretoria for a treason trial. Going to Pretoria to plead for clemency. Going to Pretoria to see a brother hang. Oh, when's this road coming to a just end? Get off my back. Get off my back. Get off my back. Russell's burning madly all day long. Roadblocks turning sleepless men. A railroad blown to hell and gone. Surely there must be someone sitting on the country's reasoning. Let me live my life. Let me live my life. Let me live my life. The border war comes. The soccer craze comes to Soweto. The big businessmen come to Soweto. My God, everyone smitten by them will resume Soweto blues. Oh, yes. That's a lot. Well, Mr. Sabama, that was excellent. On behalf of Pan American Centers, myself, Seabreeze, your audio engineer, and free thinking men and women all over the Free world. I would like to thank you for my Thank you very much. Okay then. Goodbye. Bye bye. I gather we're reaching the end, and one of the things I have to do is suggest uh, some of the things that might be done 
four writers in South Africa like Sipo Sipamlam, you've just heard, and uh, Madigwane and Governor Mbeki. Let me start with a quote that I omitted to read the last time, which kind of wraps things up for Mbeki. It takes us back to the beginning where we started. This is what he says at the close of his book, Peasants' Revolt. The more earnestly the nationalists, that's the name for the apartheid government, try to make their fantastic scheme work, the more forces they will release to resist and eventually bring them down. The harder the nationalists set their face against development and lean on forces of conservatism and stagnation, the more farcical becomes the talk of development of self-government, of Transkai independence. The Transkai, the showpiece of the Bantustan scheme, could well be the first battlefield on which apartheid will be defeated. And that, I think, puts uh, Mbeki's position and that of most South Africans in a nutshell, but it might need a little expansion in this uh, context. So I'm going to try that. But before I do that, let me thank people like Philip Levine and June Jordan for taking part in this evening's event, Carol Asher, who did a great deal of the work for it, Endicott Booksellers, who've made this uh, place available to us, and Penn, who were, of course, instrumental in arranging this event as a demonstration of their concern for the freedom of writers everywhere. They, I should add, have limitations of their own, and there are things that I would say in another context of a more political nature, which I understand I cannot say this evening. <laughs> However, uh, you may have in front of you uh, some information about what can be done. There is, for instance, a bill before Congress now with over 180 sponsors introduced by Congressman George Crockett and Congressman Howard Wolfe, uh, calling for the release of Nelson Mandela, Winnie Mandela, and other South African political prisoners. So that by writing to Congressman Crockett or your own congressman or congresswoman, you can make a very real, very positive contribution in the struggle for the freedom of the prisoners in South Africa and the creation of a free society in South Africa. You will also find on the list the addresses of the Prime Minister, Mr. Bueta. His nickname, by the way, is Weapons. <laughs> he believes that the solution to all problems is get more weapons. And his friends call him Weapons. <laughs> Wapens Bueta is his nickname. Everybody says that's his solution. I have to add that I suspect he is not unique. <laughs> I am told there are people in this part of the world who think that problems of poverty and oppression in the Central America and elsewhere can be solved by shipping more weapons to those areas. So let's not be unaware of that. Uh, I will squeeze in two bits of my own poetry to close with. But let me draw your attention first to two organizations right here 
in New York who are doing an excellent job in informing the American people. One of them, who fairly recently started, is Art, Art Against Apartheid. There's material available here, I believe. And also the American Committee on Africa, which does a great deal. The organization I work for, which is a newly formed one, you might care to take down the box number in Chicago. It's called the African Network, and our box number is 59364. And if you don't get it now, I'll be glad to give it to you afterwards. Uh, the heart of the South African system, as you probably know, is the division of a state into two clear sections, white section and a black section. And the white section, which is 14% of the population, by the latest figures, is to be given 89% of the land. 14% section of the population, it's 89% of the land. And the rest of the population, which is black, is stuck with the balance, something in the region of 11 but then, in addition, the area for the blacks is subdivided into ten parcels of land, separated from each other by white corridors. And those ten parcels are called Bantustans. There is no such word in any African language. We know in Asia you have Hindustan and you have Pakistan, but there is no such thing. In Africa, as a star, it's just one more device foisted on the African people by the white minority. And the real terror of this is that having decided that 89% of the land is reserved for that white 14% of the total population, all blacks must be removed from the white area if necessary, by force, and if necessary, dumped in areas of semi-desert where there is no water, no vegetation, no work, no schools, no hospitals. Out and discarded in what are called the dumping grounds and left there to die by a policy that can only be described as genocidal. This is the systematic destruction of a people. And this is what is happening while we sit here. And now comes for you perhaps the most alarming part. There is no country in the world which makes a bigger contribution to the apartheid system in South Africa than the United States. Amen. There is no country in the world which makes a greater contribution. It is also true that this country has the greatest capacity to influence events in South Africa and change them. If you cease to send the money and the arms and the technology, that rotten system of racial oppression would collapse. 
it is this country that sustains it and holds it in power. And therefore, there is the enormous possibility that you have of influencing my life and the life of the people in my country, either for good or for ill, but that possibility does exist. And it seems to me very important that you should be aware of that. And so when you write to your congressman or when you write to George Crockett, you are in some small way performing one of those acts that can change the direction of American policy. It is either going to continue to support apartheid and indeed augment under the Reagan administration and a policy called constructive engagement. It is either going to augment that process of oppression or the people of this country are going to say enough is enough and we have to change the direction of policy. But it does lie in the hands of the American people. I'm going to read two poems, one an old one written in a ghetto in South Africa in an attempt to create the atmosphere of the ghetto, as June Jordan referred to it earlier, to become the titled poem of a collection, although it has no title itself. This is it. Somehow we survive. And tenderness frustrated does not wither. Investigating searchlights rake our naked, unprotected contours. Over our heads, the monolithic decalogue of fascist prohibition glowers and teeters for a catastrophic fall. Boots club the peeling door. But somehow we survive severance, deprivation, loss. Patrols uncoil along the asphalt dark, hissing their menace to our lives. Most cruel, all our land is scarred with terror, rendered unlovely and unlovable. Sundered are we, and all our passionate surrender, but somehow tenderness survive. And then finally, uh, something I wrote fairly recently for an event in Chicago organized by Amnesty International, who have done some very useful things, but I am dismayed to learn today also a very troubling thing which I must bring to your attention. The heart of the apartheid system, as I said earlier, was the separation of people and the creation of Bantustan. Phony black states, black enclaves, which are not recognized by any country in the world, although there are rumors that Israel recently has been having trade relations with these. These are just rumors, but they deserve to be looked at. But. What I was dismayed to learn today at the Penn office is that Amnesty International is instructing people to write letters 
to the head of one of these phony states and is thereby conferring a legitimacy on that state which it ought not to have. Now this may be mere a mistaken goodwill, I'm not sure. I don't want to attribute any malice or any political cynicism. But I want to say that I believe it is a profound mistake to instruct people to write to the Prime Minister of Venda. There is no such a state. It is a creation of the racist Pretoria government which the African people do not accept. We do not want a dismembered and fragmentary state. We want a single democratic South African state. And we would very much regret anybody conceding recognition or legitimacy to one of these phony states. Now, I realize that that might uh, uh, put the cat among the pigeons, but uh, that's been my role in the past, so <laughs> I would not be unaccustomed to it. However, let me read the poem I wrote uh, for the amnesty event in Chicago. I was thinking, of course, of the political prisoners in South Africa, but this was an event for political prisoners all over the world, and so it is really in honor of them all, men and women. But I was thinking especially of prisoners I saw on Robben Island, where I was kept, who had been given electric shocks with electrodes attached to their temples and their nipples, their fingertips and their genitals. And one of the things I did not know was that after you come out of that process, you lose all control, not only of your muscular system, but of all control of your bones, in a sense, that you just collapse like a sack of potatoes or a sack that had been emptied, and you are unable to coordinate your muscles and to move. And so this is incorporated in the poem. Sometimes they squat on the floor. Sometimes they crouch in corners. Sometimes, like emptied sacks, they spread limply on the ground. And sometimes, in damp, dark patches, they sit like moldy vegetables. They are the political prisoners who nurse in their broken frames the frail flame of humanity while monsters growl to snuff it out. It burns in these men and women splendid and unquenchable like the red miles of the sunset. for one more moment, I would like to announce a wonderful event that Penn and the Fund for Free Expression will be having next Monday night. Um, it will be held at St. Peter's Church on Lexington and 54th Street, and it is an evening called Forbidden Writers. 
It is readings from the works of foreign writers who have been refused entry into the United States under the ideological exclusion provisions of the Immigration and Nationality Act. Gay Talese will introduce the evening. Patricia Darian will uh, give some remarks. But the best part is the, the group of readers and the group of those writers being read. Carolyn Forche, John Irving, Arthur Miller, Susan Sontag, and William Styron will be reading from the works of Julio Cortazar, Mahmoud Darwish, Dario Fo, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Pablo Neruda, and Angel Rama. I have to say something about this. I'm going to talk about forbidden writers. In this country, we do not have a single black or third world writer representing that evening. Let's talk about forbidden writers in this country. Okay, would, any, would anyone from Penn like to address this issue? Would anyone on the committee like to talk about this? Okay, then, then I will continue. Um, it is $15 admission and the, um, is to benefit the Penn Fund for Free Expression Campaign Against Ideological Exclusion. We will be handing these out at the front door. Anyone who would like tickets, there's information on the sheet. Thank you. There will be a champagne reception also. Yes. Yeah.